Matthew chapter 19, which I anticipate us hopefully being able to conclude today. We'll see how that goes. If we remember, as we talked the last two times from this chapter, we talked about the two different signs of the or sides of the self-righteousness coin. We talked about the Pharisees and legalism, and we talked about the rich young ruler in uh, what I'm calling an overachiever salvation, um, good works, works-based salvation, the idea that it's your achievements that will gain you uh, right standing with God. Both of those coins are still focused, though, around the same the same primary issue, which is a self-derived righteousness, okay? Either I'm righteous because I'm doing all the right stuff the right way, or I'm righteous because I've done enough good stuff to outweigh my bad, both of those being a self-righteous way of living. If we think about in the, uh, in the big scheme of how we do life, uh, we fall into those categories, um, even though we may believe in things like election and predestination and sovereignty of God and those kind of things, we still fall into that. Still fall into that habit and that belief that either it's because I'm doing it right that I'm right and I'm blessed and I have favor with God or that I'm doing enough good stuff that I have blessings in favor of God and that that's what gets me where I'm at. Instead of, as we talked last week, resting in the sufficient work of Jesus Christ and having the freedom that comes with knowing that our standing with God is based on him and not the way we do it or how much we do. Okay, Um, And that that is the freedom that, as we saw with the rich young ruler, that he never gained Okay, from our story. He went away sorrowful. He went away thinking he was damned and he was going to hell because he thought that there was a way that he had something good to do. And if he just did that one good thing, then that would be sufficient. And when Christ gave him, you know, seemingly in the story, the one good thing that he could do, which was to come and follow him, he didn't want to give up his stuff. So uh, he went away sorrowful from, from that moment, believing that, you know, he had missed his chance. He'd missed his opportunity. He was not going to be able to obtain that. So he went away sorrowful. He continued to walk through life feeling like a lost person. So when we looked at both of those sides of the self-righteousness, we mentioned multiple times that, you know, there was the answer that was wedged in between this that we kind of alluded to and spoke of from 13, 14, and 15 of this same chapter that Jesus tells his disciples to not hold up in, in preventing, in keeping these children that were coming to him um, from coming to him. You know, his, as we said, the historical kind of context of it, the traditional context of it that we think is what's at play here is that the elders in their communities were called upon around the time of atonement to lay hands on the children and to bless them. And so here these children were being brought to Jesus to have the same thing done to them. But the disciples were rebuking them and what you would say, well, why on earth would the disciples rebuke such a thing? Number one, I think it's because they didn't want Jesus just viewed as an elder. And number two, I think it's because it was, to their eyes, a waste of time. Okay? There were plenty of times that they did this with Jesus. I mean, there was times when the lepers are crying out after Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, you want me to just tell them to shut up? Because, I mean, we don't have time for this, Jesus. We need to move on. You know, let's leave them alone. And Jesus is like, guys, this is, this is why I'm here. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, this, this is why I'm here. Okay? Um, you're trying to keep me from doing these things, and this is why I'm here. 
You know, the woman at the well, Jesus, why are you talking to this woman? Well, that's because that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to save lost sinners. Like, this is what I'm here for. And it's these kind of people that I'm here for. Now, you, based on your traditional Jewish mindset, may say, well, you shouldn't be talking to this Samaritan woman. And you don't need to be wasting time on these uh, silly little children that's below you, that's beneath you. You don't need to do that. And you don't need to be taking care of these lepers. They're outcasts. Don't touch them. They'll make you unclean. And Jesus is like, no, these are... These are my people. These were the fringe people we were talking about. So he gives them that kind of answer. No, 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 no. You, you allow the children always to come unto me because of such is the kingdom of heaven. Or basically saying this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And we talked about that a little bit. That you know that he's not making the statement that this is why we do children's ministry. Okay, he's making the statement, this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like of such is the kingdom of heaven, because he's making the same point he was making to them back in chapter 18. It is children and childlike humility and humbleness that you need to be striving for, because that's how you enter into the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying the way into the kingdom of heaven, what the kingdom of heaven is made up of are childlike converts in that way. So he's saying you actually need to kind of keep these kids around because they're a good reminder to you of. This is what you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be condescending to this level. You're supposed to be taking yourself off the high horse and getting on this level and realizing that this is who I have called you to be. Humble yourself before the Lord. This is where you start. So don't kick the kids out. In fact, bring the kids in and learn something from the kids and emulate the kids in their humility and humbleness to come to Jesus and find blessings. That's the key. See how the kids came to Jesus to be blessed? They weren't wrapped up in legalism. They weren't going, oh, you know what? Didn't keep the law yesterday. Oh, man, I didn't. You know, I really was struggling with that whole how do I accurately divorce someone. But then I got it figured out at the ripe age of seven. And so now I feel like I'm blessed. And on the other end, they weren't going, oh, I just need I need one more good work that I can do so I can be blessed. Instead, they're just coming to Jesus. And he's going, this is what you need to get, guys. You see the Pharisee legalist? That's not the answer. You know what he needs? He needs to drop his legalism and he needs to come to me to find blessings. You see this self-righteous overachiever? You see how he thinks that he can just keep doing these good works and somehow that's going to earn him right standing with God? I'm telling you that he needs to drop all of his achievements and he needs to just lay down in front of me and find blessings. That's where you're going to find this at, is with me, at my feet. You're going to find it in that childlike humility. You lay aside all your your ambition and you lay aside all of your achievements and you lay aside all of the things that you think give you status and worth and ability and all this stuff and comfort and peace and security. We talked about that when we were addressing the idea and the issue of riches, when he makes the point that the root of all evil is money. And that root is that you get to relying on the money as the source of your protection and of your security and of your 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 self-worth, you know, when the bank's full and you got enough money to spare, man, you don't worry about things happening. You don't worry about unexpected events and you feel like you are a status person. You know, you want to be able to say you make that six-figure job, right? Because that's the thing that everybody wants to know about. So that's where that money comes into play there. Well, with a person to be able to lay that down and say, no, my status, my worth, my protection, my everything is just, it's just in Jesus. 
That's, that's where that peace and that rest is found. So then he goes forward when he is teaching and he goes, he addresses the, um, he addresses the disciples after the rich young ruler left in verse 23. And it says, then said Jesus unto his disciples, verily I say to you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With this, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. And what shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say to you, that ye which have followed me, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that has forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold, that would be now, and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now there is a lot... Of teaching in this, but keep in mind these sections of scripture are directly related to everything we've talked about before. And notice how this is all circulating around. Okay, when you have the two conclusions that we have here with the legalistic Pharisee and the overachiever, works based, self righteous man. Both of them, when you're looking at the main conclusion of the Pharisees, is that when you really get down to it, the root problem they are dealing with is that you are too, quote-unquote, right to submit to God. All right? What they will struggle with, what they hang up on, what is going to prevent them from entering into that life is, I am already too right to submit to God. That's why when the Pharisees argue with Jesus and say, Jesus, if you just knew what kind of woman this was, you know, you wouldn't be dealing with her. And Jesus was like, this is the woman I've actually come for. Because you know what? It's the sinner that needs salvation, not the righteous person. It is the sick person who needs a physician, not the healthy person. So when he's talking to that person, he's saying, you have a problem. You're actually the one that's not right in this situation. You actually view yourself so right, you are so correct, you are so legalistically perfect that you don't need a Savior. So the main conclusion from the self-righteous legalist is that I'm so right already. What could I possibly need Jesus for? The main conclusion of the person who is the overachiever, the rich young ruler, the one thing that will finally give him assurance and peace about his eternal life is Submitting to Jesus and recognizing that all of his good works are not going to get him there. But the main conclusion with him is that he will spend his entire life doing good, searching for salvation, working himself to death, and still be wandering in this world lost because he has not submitted to Jesus. He's still wandering through this world going, man, there's still one thing. What's the one thing else? What's the one more thing I can do to get what I'm searching for? And Jesus is going, it's just following me, brother. That's it. Like you can lay all that other stuff aside. So both of these 
are answered by that middle road. What is the path? It is humble submission to Jesus Christ. And that's why when Peter responds to what Jesus says, he's asking that question. Well, then how's anybody safe? You know, Jesus' answer there where he says it's hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's so hard, it's like trying to get a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The implication of that is an impossibility, okay? It is an impossibility. How can a man, especially a rich man, enter into the kingdom of heaven on his own accord, on his own abilities, especially when you look at the fact that the richness of a person typically would imply that they are a hard worker, they're an overachiever, they're an entrepreneur, they're whatever. I mean, you look at how the how the scripture bears out, especially when you're looking at the Old Testament stories about who were the rich people and the, and the, and the people who had the most and the people that were um, prosperous. When you're talking about Jews, it was typically the people that were blessed of God, right? Okay, so you look at Abraham, Abraham takes his cut from Lot, Abraham takes the sickest, less, you know, not the most glamorous of the stock, and he goes out to the least favorable lands, and God blesses him because of his faithfulness, and his flock's abounding, his grass is growing, everything's happy, Abraham's a rich man, okay? Noah was blessed in that way. He was blessed by God to be a man who had all of this produce and productivity. He was considered to be a rich man because of that. Job was, I mean, all these people, you just keep going through all these people who were godly people were blessed by God and it showed forth in material gains. Now, it's not health, wealth and prosperity. It's just what the Bible kind of says, you know, that if you seek the kingdom of heaven first and his righteousness, all these other things, the material things will be added unto you. Doesn't mean that there's not poor people who are followers of God or that God doesn't have poor children in this world. It just means that when you look at the Old Testament example that the Jews would have been operating off of, if this was a rich young ruler who was a Jew then more than likely he was blessed, okay, by God. And you can see he was following God. He kept the commandments from his youth up. So you can say, okay, well, he was blessed because he was doing what God told him to do. I mean, that's a one for one that you could interpret in that way. So you look at them and say, well, what are they going to be operating from? Well, they're operating from the mindset that I'm already, my blessings are directly tied to my good works. If I do good and follow God, he's going to bless me. My flocks are going to get bigger. My grass is going to grow greener. Life is going to be happy in that way. So you can tell how it it, it rubs against them when they're going, but Jesus, he's kept the commandments. He's blessed of God. But you're saying that's actually going to be prohibitive for him entering into the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't make sense. That's not lining up. How is it that a rich man of all people, you know, that's kind of the implication you get there. Of all people, we would assume a rich man would be able to get in. Well, why? Well, because he's blessed, because he's got the stuff, maybe because he has the ability to do more. Maybe he's been able to whatever it may be. That's the assumption, because their immediate response was like, well, I mean, if the rich man can't get in, then who can be saved? And Jesus makes the point. It's impossible with men. It's an impossibility. So when he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and you go well that's impossible and you go yeah exactly it's impossible with men to be able to achieve that it is impossible for this man 
to be able to achieve that. It's impossible for him, even with all of his wealth and all of his ability and all of his achievements and all of his accomplishments and everything that he has and everything he's built, it is still impossible for him to do that one good work that would enter him into eternal life. It's impossible with men. The reason the rich man stands out as the greatest impossibility to the Jews as being such a shocking thing is because, again, of all people, they would have the most resources to be able to do that. If a man could achieve this on his own, well, you would assume the rich man would be able to. Why? Well, man, they can go to the best colleges. I mean, we've already seen that. You can pay your way into the best colleges. I mean, you do all sorts of great stuff. You can get into the best colleges. I mean, this is statistics. This is socioeconomical sociology statistics, okay? If you have a wealthy family, their opportunities are typically going to be exponentially more for their children than a poor family. That's just statistics, okay? You say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, it's just the case. I mean, if I'm wealthy, I can pay for the tutors. I can pay for the better college. I can pay for the better opportunities. I can set you up in a better situation. That's just, that's just how it goes. So of all people, especially the rich people in this day and time, man, they were the kings. They were the rulers. Of all people, they should be able to obtain this eternal life based on their good works. They can put enough into that nonprofit. They can donate enough to the temple. They can achieve more. You know, you take a wealthy person like Bill Gates or something like that, man, they can throw out a few million dollars and they can fundamentally change life in a place like Africa or Asia or something like that. And it's nothing to them, man. They can just fling it out there. Of all people to be able to do good works enough to get you in, it would be the rich people who have that ability, right? They don't have anything to worry about. All they got to do is... Give. So that's why it was such a shock to Peter and them. That's why it was such a shock to them about, well, I mean, if this man couldn't, he's kept his youth, the law from his youth up, and he's got all the wealth, all the ability, all the status, all the everything. If he can't do it, then who can? Who can do it? Who can do the good work to gain eternal life? Who can be saved in that way? And what Jesus says is, nobody. <laughs> Nobody is going to be saved by that. Nobody is going to be saved by that one good work you could do. In example here with this guy, why do you think it is that Jesus called him out on this? this he doesn't say, he hasn't said this to really anybody else. I mean, the only other people he's really said something similar to was when the, the, the follower of Christ came up, or the, one, the would-be follower of Christ came up to Christ and said, I'll follow you wherever, I'll, wherever you go, I'll follow you, but let me go bury my dead father first. And Jesus' answer was, leave the dead to bury the dead and you come follow me. That's the only other real occasion you have one of these really crazy abandon everything and come follow me statements in, in this way. Now, I mean, I, of course, all the apostles were kind of brought in this way, all right? But as far as this kind of crazy statement of, okay, this is the only thing you got to do, and then you're set. I mean, this is, this is one of them. He doesn't tell this to everybody. In fact, most of the people he talks to, he says, repent and be baptized. Okay? In the disciples' case, back just in the last chapter, he said, humble yourself as a child. All these different things keep coming up. So why was it that Jesus focused on this man's riches so much? Because Jesus knew what this man was going to do. He knew exactly what this man's response was going to be. He called this man out where he was. 
And we see the man's response. So here he gives the question, how is it that someone can be saved then? If a rich man can't do it, if it's hard for a rich, it's too hard for a rich man to do it. It's too hard for them to give up their stuff. You know, that's kind of the implication that he's given there. But what he's really teaching his disciple is that this is not possible with man. It's like you're looking to the wrong source immediately and still disciples. You are looking at this man's economic status and saying, well, he's got to be able to. Or you're looking at his good works and going, well, he's got to be able to. He's a pretty good guy. Jesus said, no, he missed the point and you're missing the point with men. This is impossible, just like it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle it's impossible it requires someone else it requires a different source of satisfaction it requires a different source of debt payment so this is this is kind of in lines with that okay to to kind of show to the rich young ruler to show to the disciples, he's already spoken about this. You know, he spoke to, he was actually speaking to his disciples and followers, but also to the Jews that were around him, especially the Pharisees. You know, he made a point in Matthew chapter 7 to say, there's going to be many people in the last day that are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these good works for you? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus said, I never knew you though. Depart. Well, but I did enough good works, right? I even did a lot of good works in your name. Does that not count for something? Jesus says, no, because I never knew you. There's a lot of religious people in these days. There was a lot of religious Pharisees, a lot of religious legalists, and a lot of just religious overachievers like the rich young ruler who would do a lot of good works thinking it was the amount of good works that I did that would ultimately get me there. And you can almost pick up with the disciples that... They're still thinking along those lines just a little bit. They're still following along those lines. The apostles are still sitting there going, well, I mean, so, but I mean, we gave up everything we gave up. So what do we get? They're still thinking along this line of, oh, so we did do what that guy didn't do. So since we gave up everything, Jesus, what are we going to get? We did give up all of our stuff. Peter gave up his lucrative fishing business. You know, Matthew gave up his lucrative tax collector business. I mean, we gave everything up and followed you. So what are we going to get? Still this underlying impression. Still this underlying thought. Still this kind of idea of self-righteousness that has to be weeded out. Because here's the problem. The self-righteous person... Just like the healthy person who won't seek a physician, or maybe you should say the stubborn sick person who won't seek a physician, either way you want to put it. Just like the person who does not, if they don't recognize they need a Savior, why would they ever come to the Savior? If it's all about how I've already achieved rightness, why do I need someone to make me right? There's no need for that. That's what's scary about it is that people, that's why I say we enter into these things. Oh, well, but I show up to church every Sunday. Doesn't that count for something? 
Oh, but I do all these good works. Look at all these things I've done. Look at all these things I've benefited. Look at all these things, how I've done them. And all this, I mean, that's all there. Say, well, if it was based just on that alone, shouldn't that count for something? When Jesus is addressing them here, he's saying, no, there's, there's something else that actually matters. It's the things that God is able to do that you cannot do. I mean, Paul even talks about this when he's addressing in the Roman letter, when he's addressing about the Jews and the law. He says there was a righteousness of the law. And the Jews did that law. And they still didn't obtain the righteousness because it was not done by faith. There was a missing element of it. Okay. So just like the people in Matthew chapter 7, oh, but did we do all these good works in your name? Yeah, but, but from where and for what? If you're doing it for this self-righteous overachiever that you're going to somehow earn something with God, again, that's not going to get you anywhere. So here he's saying there's something that is impossible with you and me that is only possible with God. So just as the rich young ruler was addressing Jesus and saying, good master, what good thing can I do? And Jesus says, do you remember there's only one person who's good? Do you remember there's only one source of goodness? Are you addressing the works or are you addressing the person, God, the source of all goodness? If you're seeking goodness, you have to seek God, not the work. If you're seeking goodness, you have to seek God, not the law. It's not by the traditional ritual religion. It is by God. It's not by the overachieving good works person. It's by God. That's the only one that this is possible by. All of those other things become impossibilities if God is not the source of it. So he goes forward, he explains to them, just like, again, when you look in chapter 18, when we were talking about, except you be converted as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever shall receive one in my name shall receive me. Do we notice how there is the... There, there are the external factors that are exhibited because of the internal realities. Okay? There are the external factors that are exhibited because of the internal realities. What is impossible with man is that I, by my own self, cannot, in, especially in my natural state, could never come to the place where I would humbly give up everything that I have gained for myself and lay it on the line and just submit to some man who walked some 2,000 years ago on this earth and was a Jew. By my nat- I'd never do that. There's nobody in their right mind that would do that. Nobody in their right mind, like with all these Pharisees. You're going to tell me I'm going to submit to Jesus? I don't think so. I'm a Pharisee. I'm already better than Jesus. Jesus came on the scene just a few years ago. I've been being right in the law for my entire life. And I follow Moses. I'm better. Who's Jesus? He's just some dude that showed up. I followed Moses. He's the one that gave us bread in the wilderness, you know, that bread that you hated and cursed and spit back and said, you want to go back? Yeah, that bread. That's Moses. That's who I follow, though. Who's Jesus? My own self, my own possibilities would never do that. That's why you can go out here and like you 
preach as we talked a couple of uh, last week and the week before about the parable of the sower. Okay, when he was coaching his disciples about preaching, he said, you're going to go out here and you're going to preach. And guess what? As you throw that preaching out there, you're going to have a lot of responses from a lot of people. And there's going to be some that is just not going to sit with at all. That they're going to hear it and be like, yeah, sure. Sure, I'm supposed to repent of what? What have I done? I'm supposed to submit to whom? I'm the king. I'm supposed to go. I'm supposed to give up my life. I don't think so. Except you be humbled and converted as a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, how do I get to that point? I read a good self-help book. I don't know. Maybe that's the case. Maybe I watched enough Oprah. Maybe I feel a little bit better about myself. Maybe I doctor filled my brain. And now I'm in a place where I'm willing to submit to humility. No, what is impossible with man is very much possible with God. So what is impossible with man, I cannot humble myself to that level no matter how hard I try. It's very much possible with God. God humbled people throughout history. God was able to bring the most exalted ruler of the world down to his very knees. So what's possible with God and impossible with man, God has been doing the whole time. But except you be converted. And notice, too, that, you know, he gives us that kind of idea of the humbling as a little child. But also you notice how he ties to that, that the receiving of that little child is as if you were receiving Christ. Okay. There's this kind of external thing that's circulating around with that as well. Notice that when he was teaching this back in Galilee, when he was teaching the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, notice the characteristics here of the people. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the children of God. And blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you look back at these scriptures and notice. You notice those words describing these people. Okay. The words that describe these people. Poor in spirit. Humble. Humility. the, The idea that they're not haughtier than everybody else. And he says, guess what? Yours is the kingdom of God. Be humble like this little child. Yours is the kingdom of God. Don't reject these children. They are the kingdom of God. That poor in spirit mentality he's saying all the way back in Matthew. These are the people that make up the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit. Mourners of their souls. Those who are meek. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those would be internal things. Internal cravings. Internal desires. Internal things that were impossible for man to come up with on their own. They were placed there by God who was able to do anything. And then from that, there is merciful. Now, I think that's so beautiful because we were talking about it in chapter 18 and we're talking about the root things of Christianity, of following Christ. What were those key principles? We talked about mercy and compassion And forgiveness that Jesus is arguing with his disciples saying, no, guys, these are the things you've got to get. And all the way back in Matthew chapter five, when he first started teaching, he was like, the merciful are the ones who are going to receive mercy. 
You want to see what it looks like to be a child of God, to be a disciple of Christ? You're merciful. You're pure in heart. You don't have any kind of hidden agendas or beguilement in you that's going, that you're not out for any kind of ulterior motive. You have a pureness of heart to simply do what Christ has commanded you to do. And that is evidenced in how you interact with the people around you. You're a peacemaker, not a peace enjoyer or a peace observer. You are actually a peacemaker. Your desire because of what has been worked in you by the all possible God is to seek peace in a situation. Not so discord, not create contention, not create offense. You're to love your neighbor and even love your enemy. You're to create peace. And notice that you are the persecuted for righteousness sake, not the persecutor. The persecuted, not the persecutors. Notice those characteristics. They're coming back. And the point to the, the these point to that humble internal nature of the true disciple of Jesus Christ, but also the external actions that go along with it of being merciful, seeking righteousness, purity of heart, peace waking, non-offense, non-persecutorial. And those external things are coming from that. But it starts with the all-possible God. And I think that's what's so, what's so beautiful about that phrase. That phrase that he used there, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible, is the same thing God said to Sarah and Abraham in Genesis. When Sarah's going, there is no way that this 90-year-old chick is having a baby. Things are off and done. There is no process there by which this could happen. That's funny that you should even say that because it's not going to happen, God. And God tells them, hey, guess what? All things are possible with me. Maybe impossible with you. You may be able to go to every fertility clinic around Galilee that you want to or around Canaan and find all that you want to. You can in vitro yourself to the max. You will never make this happen. You want to know why? Because there's no physical, biological process by which this could happen. With men, it is impossible. But with God, there's nothing that's impossible. With God, I can make anything happen. I can make the oldest engine crank. I can make the deadest womb alive. And I can make the deadest... That's even a word? Is that a word? Is deadest a word? I can make the deadest sinner the most living child of God there ever was. And from that dead sinner to a living child of God, I can also humble him and bring him to the point where he is able to enter the kingdom of heaven. With men, it is impossible. A man coaching this rich young ruler saying, yeah, but don't you know that if you just get rid of all that stuff, you'd be just as happy as you could be. And he's looking at you going, you are crazy. You know, I'm all, I, I you know props to the Buddhists who can, who can just do that, all right? Props to the monks who can just give that up and, and go live in a cloister and they can do those kind of things. Props to you for, for doing that. But if you're coaching it on a man-to-man level, what benefits am I going to get out of this? Well, you're going to be impoverished your entire life. You're going to have one set of clothes you can wear. You're going to stink and be nasty. You're going to be hungry majority of your life. So go out and give up everything that you've earned and achieved. Doesn't that sound like a smart decision? 
No, it sounds like you're crazy. There's no way I'm doing that. How on earth could you even expect me to do that? If anything, my mindset's going to be wired to the more stuff I have, the more ability I have to buy and do and achieve what I want. Now think about the idea of a Fortune 500 CEO. They got there because they have the mindset of there is nothing I can't do. I will work harder. I will work faster. I will build up my empire. I will achieve till I can achieve no more. And there's nothing you can say to me to stop me. Okay. So the rich young ruler is always going to be operating from that idea of, no, actually, if I have achieved this much, if I have risen in power and fame and glory, if I have gained all my money, gained all my ability, then actually it's not give this up. It's actually I just need to fight harder and achieve more. It's my lack of achievement that is in the way, not my resources. If I give up my resources, then I won't be able to achieve as much as I could. I can buy the right spiritual coach. I can get the right this and that. And I can make myself the most holy, righteous person there is. Jesus' answer is, it's impossible for you to do this. You can be as rich as you want to. It's impossible for you to do this. You can be the best young person who has kept the law your entire life. It's still impossible for you to do this. You cannot do this. You are just like Sarah at 90 years old. You cannot do this. It is impossible. So here you have... Jesus reorienting the disciples, reorienting these people to what the reality is. It is impossible for you to do this. It is only possible for God to do this. Now, you then look at how the disciples respond and their response was, well, we have given up all these things. What is in it for us? Now, Jesus does not go forward to say that because you did this, that is how you gained your eternal life that he tells them they have. He doesn't go on to say, oh, yeah, see, that was the key. Did I not tell you that? Did I not mention that to you? Well, I told the rich young ruler and he missed out. But now you know that when you go out and preach, when I'm done and gone with Acts, Romans, Galatians, Colossians, Corinthians, all those. The main point of the gospel is this. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have eternal life. He didn't say that. It is interesting, though, that he does answer their question back. We say, the disciples said, we have forsaken all these things, Lord. What's in it for us? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Lord? We have forsaken all these things. We have given all these things up. What are we going to get because of the sacrifices we made? And Jesus told them a spiritual reality that when everything comes to fruition, that you apostles will sit on 12 uh, 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's actually mentioned again in future areas. It's mentioned in the end times. It's mentioned in 
revelations and there's alliteration to things in revelations that match back to this. There's a uh, there's allegory and alliteration used in revelations, if I'm using that word right, in revelations about the 12 apostles being the very pillars and walls of the new Jerusalem that descends to... I mean, there's all these things that kind of tie them back, okay, to being a foundational a foundational key figure, okay, in this new church deal, all right? So he gives them that, all right? Yes, you are, as my called out apostle is going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But he's giving a greater principle beyond that. Everyone that has forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or fathers or mothers or wives or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. There's two aspects that he says are rewards for their obedience. Okay, two aspects of this. Number one, again, you go back to it. It was not the fact that they gave up their stuff that gained them eternal life. There is a testimony, though, that anyone who is willing to humble themselves as a child and give up all of these things to come and follow me, they will have eternal life. Why? Well, because they're children of God. Those are the only people who are going to do this. It's the only people who have the ability to do this. The only people who God has made possible to be able to do this. So they shall inherit eternal life because children of God who have been born again, children of God who are following after Christ, that is a promise given to them. You shall inherit eternal life. That is the end game blessing. But what I think is a a beautiful statement in this that he gives that I have always enjoyed when, when I've read through this or used it in other places is he gives them an assurance of the hundredfold benefit. We talked about the whole time, those who would bless, those who would follow after God in the older Jewish traditions that we see from the Old Testament, those who followed after God, guess what God did? He blessed them. They had cows and sheep and all these things that grew and prospered and all this stuff. You saw God's blessing tangibly in their lives. Here he says, if you are going to submit to me and follow me, if you're giving up stuff for me, if you have sacrificed in my name, amen, I'm going to bless you. Now that blessing is going to come in a form that you may not kind of grab at first. You know, a lot of times we look at it and we say, okay, well, I did it. So now where's my stuff? You know, where's my houses and my wives? I mean, you know, he says you're going to have a hundredfold. So I guess you have a hundredfold wives, a hundredfold fathers, a hundred. I mean, that's, you know, we're getting into a little kind of paradise thing there, I think, of alternate persuasions. But that's where you go from the idea that this is a natural, tangible thing. Where is it? Where's my stuff? Jesus, I gave it up for you. Where's the stuff you're going to give me back? And he says, you can't even comprehend the expansiveness of the family in the kingdom of heaven that you have gained. You can't even understand the connection that you're going to have, that you can travel to places like Kenya and Malawi and South Sudan and Iraq and Asia and America and Europe and all these places. And you can find... My little children who are your brothers and your sisters and your mothers and your fathers. You you will be blessed beyond recognition a hundredfold. 
You shall have homes that you never even built. You will have vineyards you never even planted. You have places to go and people to to interact with and families and friends and loved ones around the globe. That this kingdom, like he described so many times before, like the big mustard tree that grew out and had all the fowls of the air, all the birds of the air come and live underneath its shadow. That all these different, diverse, multicultural families coming together in that one banner of Jesus Christ. You'll be blessed a hundredfold in that. If you're holding on to this small fortune you have, rich young ruler, thinking that it is your whole identity, I'm telling you that when you lay that down and you follow me, you're going to find riches and wealth and glory that you never even knew existed. You've got a portfolio that's bigger than you ever thought. It's more diverse than you could have ever imagined with dividends that are far beyond anything you would be able to stick in a bank. And beyond that, beyond all of that, beyond and above and exceeding abundantly beyond that, you will have the blessing of eternal life that will go on and on and on. It's another one of those reasons why I feel like when we talk about what eternal life is going to be like, what heaven will be like, what the new world and the new earth and all that stuff will be like, when we try to get into this idea of not knowing people, I don't think Jesus would say you're going to have hundredfold wives and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers if we're going to be amnesiac after that. It's like, well, I get to enjoy you here, but then we're going to go and live for the rest of our lives together and not have any clue who we are. I just I, I feel like the down payment on our inheritance, as Ephesians talks about, is this. It's seeing this. It's realizing that there is this greater family that we're a part of. And getting to share and enjoy life with them all. But he does make a closing statement to these disciples. Yeah, I have put you on these 12, tri- these 12 thrones. Yeah, I have elevated you to that sense that you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And yes, I have promised you that if you give all this up for me, I will bless you a hundredfold. But remember this, there are many that are first that shall be last, and there are many that are last that shall be first. Do not think of yourself more highly than anyone else. The child, the humble child servant is the one who is the greatest in the kingdom. Don't let yourself become haughty thinking that because you've done this, you have earned more favor with God. I'm telling you, the humble child will exceed you if you follow that mindset. So he's warning them again about that. And the next time we're going to go into another one of those kingdom of heaven is like chapters. So I hope this has been beneficial. We'll continue to plug through this. You know, we have officially made it to chapter 20. Okay, we are exceeding abundantly surprised. So may God bless us to continue to work on this.